We need another slide that says remain standing. (laughs) Thank you. And dismiss the children. (laughs) Children, you are free to go. We set you free. You're free indeed. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We're going to have to back up as we do their teaching because it starts out with a question, and the question is a part of a bigger context, obviously. So whoever did these chapter divisions um, did the best they could, and sometimes you think it's a new thought, but this is a continuation of the thoughts of chapter 6, started with 6-1. 7-1, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear the fruit to God. For when you were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in your members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Father, Help us to glean from this section Paul's argument. Help us to make good application this morning to our lives. Father, we thank you for the truth that's revealed here. Father, we thank you that a miraculous transaction, supernatural, unseen to us, transpired the moment we placed our faith in Jesus. And so, God, we need to understand those truths so that we can apply those truths. And, God, we need to understand them correctly so that we can apply them correctly. So, Holy Spirit, guide us through this passage of Scripture this morning to that intent. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, uh, for that's the only way that we can come into your holy presence. Amen. You can be seated. So like I, like I said, this is a, a question that starts this text this morning. And so the question is linked to a question that really was posed in chapter 6. When Paul finished all of his doctrinal um, teaching, he began his practical teaching of how to apply 
the truths of being justified by faith alone. And so it naturally raised questions in the minds of the Jewish readers, especially, what is our relationship to the law then? And what is our relationship to sin? If it's all grace, works has nothing to do with salvation, righteousness is imputed by grace through faith alone, Paul anticipates the question in 6.1, what shall we say? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And notice the chapter that we read this morning has the same flavor as 6.2. Certainly not, how shall we who died to sin? So there's a concept that Paul is really trying to get across here, and it's the concept of death. And that is this simple axiom that he presents at the beginning of this passage. Now, we've got to sort of transport ourselves back 2,000 years to really understand the impact that this was having on a Jewish person who revered the law of God. And thinking about who wrote this passage, I think it helps us understand this context as well as a man who said that he was blameless according to the law. And yet something in Paul's theology completely switched when he came to know the grace through Jesus Christ. So the first century Jew had such a high esteem for the law, and it was, it was based on, on the Old Testament, and on God's word, the psalmist said in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect. The Hebrew word there, tom, means it's complete. There's nothing that needs to be added to God's law. Now we start to, to meditate on that, and how does that relate then to the person of Christ? When Jesus began his earthly ministry, his first sermon, he said, think not that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And whoever breaks one of these least of the commandments will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. So there wasn't an abrogation of the law when Christ came, but I think we need to understand what Christ meant when he said, I've not come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill the law. So Jesus fulfilled the law down to every letter of it, every detail of it. Not one jot or one tittle shall anywise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And that was Christ fulfilling it. So in the sense of the law trying to be fulfilled in our lives, that's an impossibility. But to the Jew who didn't know grace and didn't know Christ, to say that the law was pushed aside by grace, it left a lot of confusion in the mind of a Jewish reader. And so Paul now uses a law that they could well understand and relate to to get them to see the significance of what the law could and could not do. So 
in this section, Paul presents to us an axiom. An axiom is simply a statement or a proposition that is true, and it's universally observed. And so he presents this axiom of the law and death. When Paul presented the truth that we're not under law but under grace, he knew that it would raise many questions in the minds of his Jewish readers. So in chapter 7, Paul begins here in chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to verse 14 of explaining our relationship to the law. Paul uses something that they well understood to show them that there is a diametrically opposing things that either you are one or the other. Either you're married to your spouse and your spouse is living and you're bound in that marriage responsibility to one another and the only thing that could release that is death. And then he uses in chapter 6 the exact same analogy to get the same point across of a slave who is serving a master. You can't serve one master and then be loyal to another master. It's one or the other. And so Paul is using something that was well understood in the Roman culture and in Jewish law to drive a point home to them. So he says here, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Paul said the same thing in chapter 3 when he said, now we know that whatsoever thing the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world will be guilty before God. For by the law, no one is justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So he was appealing to something that they understood as a Jew, and uses the law to show them that the law is not a way to be justified. To give us some historical context as well, in first century Judaism, the law had risen to a means of salvation. And when Jesus was confronting and running head on with the Pharisees, they did not understand that Jesus was actually showing them the spirit, the essence of all that the law was intended to mean. When Jesus would heal, oftentimes he deliberately did it on the Sabbath day, almost looking as if he was violating the law. And yet, in essence, Jesus was not setting the law aside. Jesus was fulfilling all the essence of what the Sabbath represented. The Sabbath represented a time of rest, a time of blessing, a time of ceasing your own efforts and resting totally in God's completed work. That's what the Sabbath was all about. And when the Pharisees kept the letter of the law, they missed the holy intent of the law. 
So one of the first century rabbis wrote this in the Talmud. The Holy One created man's evil inclinations, but he created the Torah to overcome it. Now that rabbi is wrong on both accounts. God never created evil intentions. That arises from our own hearts. And God never created the Torah to curb those evil intentions or to give us victory over those evil intentions. You're saying, what? God didn't use the law to do that? No. The law has no power to deliver you from a sinful habit. The law has the power and the ability to point it out to you. So it is good. It is just. It is holy. Paul goes on to say in chapter 7, I would have never known lust if the law hadn't said, thou shalt not covet. That's all it could do, though. So in this passage, we are going to look at a very simple axiom. Then we're going to look at an analogy that he gives, which is marriage. And then we're going to look at the application. And then we'll finally look at the explanation of what it's all about. So an axiom. I've already kind of given the definition. And our young people who've got your notes there, be ready at hand right now. Here's your pointer. An axiom is a proposition that is established and is universally accepted. That's the definition. Now, why would Paul use this axiom in this context, Paul is trying to relate to his listeners. This is a wonderful lesson for you and I, how we communicate with people. Use something that is familiar to their own background. What Paul is doing, he's building a bridge with his listeners. He's using something that's culturally relative, that they can identify with. And then secondly, he's showing it is true so that it will undergird his argument. So this axiom is an important part of, of this passage, though it seems very obvious to you and I that it's just one of those, yeah, duh moments, or don't you know, brethren. And what he's going back to is really verse 14 of chapter 6. So go back and just look at that. What shall we say? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace. And then in chapter 7, he's kind of explaining what all of this means, or don't you know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man. It lords over him. The Greek word there is kurios, or kurieo, the verb form of to lord. It's the master. The law does that as long as a man lives. So he's relating, he's given common ground. He's also showing them that I'm going to build my case here. I'm going to build my argument. And when I get finished, you've got to agree with me. Isn't that a smart idea? He starts out this whole passage saying, I'm going to show you something that you already believe and accept. And then I'm going to give you an application. And then you can't get around it because you've agreed to it. So the law is binding. Here, it's a simple simple axiom, simple truth that we all accept as long as a person lives. The obligation of the law 
cannot be merely set aside. Death is the only legitimate exception for nullifying the obligation. This morning I had a conversation with Jordan. He was reading this passage with me this week, and he came in and he said, you know, Pastor, he said, that'd be like this guy in court. And they wheel this corpse up, and they try to shackle him. And they try to tell him, these are all the things that you have done. These are all your violations. These are all your penalties that you're going to have to pay. And the law has got to be fulfilled. And they look at the guy, and the guy's dead. And they said, and what does the judge do? The judge says, we have to dismiss the case. And then if somebody wants to come in and stand in the place of that guy, he says, but you're not him. You get out, you're free to go. And this is, in essence, what God has done with you and I. And so Paul is using an analogy here, and he's going to explain that in verses 2 through 3. So let's look at the analogy now, or the illustration. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband, and the word bound, the tense there, is the perfect tense. And it means that she has been bound or the husband has been bound the minute those marriage vows are given. And it cannot be broken. That's the idea of the perfect tense. It's something that happens in the past and it has continuing results. And she or he is bound to that commitment. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. So when she marries another, she's no longer considered an adulteress, but even though she's married to another. Now, the interesting word here, another, there's two Greek words for another. One is alas, which means another of the same kind. The other is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. Let me kind of give you an example. I see my running son in here this morning. So if I ask him, Jordan, I want you to order me another pair of running shoes. That could have two ideas in his head. He says, well, Paz, tired of running in those clunky boot hokas for old men. And I'm going to give him another pair, a different pair. Or it could mean, I want another pair. I've worn those out. Give me one just like it. And Jordan would probably understand that the old man doesn't want anything to run fast in. He needs another pair just like those big old clunky boots that he wears with the marshmallow cushion. <laughs> so that's, but Paul uses the word another kind. It's totally different. And when we enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ, it's totally different. It's a different type of relationship, and that's the word that Paul uses here. Now, I want to make a comment about this illustration. Paul is not teaching an exhaustive principle about marriage and divorce and remarriage in this passage. That is not the intent of this passage. However, let me say this. This is God's original design from the beginning. This is exactly what God wants for every marriage. And that is why Paul can use this as an analogy 
that would have been understood universally. So this morning we're not going to get into marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's a complex and a long teaching. But I will say this. I agree with this principle, and I agree even with the idea that Jesus taught to remarry, even with the exceptions that he gave, the one exception that he gave, to remarry in the eyes of Christ was to be considered an illegitimate union. Paul taught the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, there's there's an unbeliever who departs, let them depart. But then Paul says this, let them be reconciled or remain unmarried. He doesn't give an option to remarry. Now, I know we live in a messed up world. We have messed up lives. We've done a lot of things that we regret. We did things that were wrong before we got saved, and God doesn't undo those things, and there's still violations of his will and his purposes. But God is bigger than our sin. Where our sin abounds, grace superabounds. So all that said, let's now look at the reason this analogy, God's original design. The law has a binding force. That's what his analogy is for. That's what his illustration. Only death can separate the marriage partner and set them free. Violation of the law is only possible, or non-violation of the law is only possible. I don't know how I word this. That doesn't make any sense when I'm reading here. In other words, you've got to be dead if you're going to remarry. Okay, Remarriage of a spouse that's living is considered adultery. Remarriage after death is free because you the law has no longer binding force on you. So that's the illustration. That's the axiom. We all understand it. It's very straightforward. Nothing difficult. But it is very, very profound. It is so profound. It is only when you and I die that you and I are liberated. When you and I will die That's when you and I come alive. A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, my favorite chapter in that book, is the blessedness of possessing nothing. When you and I come to the point in our lives where we say, God, I am dead to self and I'm alive to you, that's when you and I are the freest. Well, yesterday was such a joy to be at a funeral. That seems like an odd thing to say. But to hear Brother Dennis describe his mom and the joy that this woman had, who had no fancy vehicles, no big house, an ugly orange shag carpet basement where all the grandkids and all the family would come together And she, by the world's standards, had absolutely nothing. But that woman possessed everything. And that is the beauty of dying. Then we truly live. And that is Paul's point here. So let's get to the application. We have become dead to the law. Now, what does that mean? Now, we've been going over this phrase a lot in this passage in the book of Romans, to be dead to something. It doesn't mean that you're a corpse to it. 
It doesn't mean that you can't listen to it or you can't hear it. So to be dead to the law doesn't mean that I don't understand the law or I don't see the law or I don't hear the law. In fact, every day a believer should be listening to the holy law of God. But what does it mean to be dead to it then? To be dead to it means I am no longer under its condemnation. It no longer has the right to tell me what I owe and what I have done wrong and all the penalties and all the responsibilities as a guilty sinner. You and I are dead to all of that. That's the idiomatic expression that Paul is using here to be dead to the law. There's three other things that Paul means to be dead to the law. The law is no longer a means by which you will achieve sanctification. That almost seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It almost seems like that's a contradiction, but it's a paradox. The law has no power to change the human heart. So I'm dead to it. I don't look to the law to become a better person, to be more godly. I don't use the law to restrain sin. In fact, the law has just the opposite effect of restraining sin. Paul says on later on that, but sin, taking its opportunity by the commandment, it produced in me all manner of evil desire. Now, a third thing to be dead to the law means that it's not a way of walking in conformity to the heart of God. The fruit that is produced by the Holy Spirit alone is the way that you and I walk and live in harmony with the very essence of what the law intended us to do. The law intends us to love our neighbor as ourself. All it can do is tell us what to do. It can't change the heart. What is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in that passage in Galatians 5.22, Paul says this at the end of that. And against these things, or against such, there is no law. And here's his point. When you are walking not by the law to try to live by God's standard and by the very heart of God, and you are walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is going to produce all those things that the law says you're supposed to do, but does not have the power to produce them in you. So when you are walking in the Spirit, you have no need for an external law to produce the attitudes and behaviors that mirror the very heart of Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, isn't it, though? So how is it possible for me to be dead to the law as a means of sanctification? How is it possible for me to be dead to the law and all of its condemnation, all the obligations, all the penalties that's imposed on me by the law? How can I be dead to it? It's through, go to your passage, let's let the Bible answer this question for us. 
You are dead. You have become dead through the body of Christ. Isn't that simple? But isn't it profound? Go back to chapter 6 and verse 3. Or don't you know that as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Let's go back to our analogy. Let's go back to the illustration that Paul is giving. Death sets the woman free. She can remarry. She's got all the freedom to do that. Death in our lives with Christ, it is the enablement to say that I'm dead to the law. It's through the body of Christ. It's our union with Him. Death with Christ is the only way that we can have our sins atoned. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, Who, talking about Jesus, in His own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. And look what Peter writes here, that being dead to sin, you should be alive unto righteousness. It is that death. That's how I'm dead to sin. I enter into Christ's death with him. When we share in the death of Christ, we also abolish the enmity of the law and all of its demands over our lives. Colossians 2.14 says this, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. That's the law. It's been wiped clean. It's been wiped out, which was contrary to us. We couldn't fulfill it. It was taken out of the way. How was it taken out of the way? By being nailed to the cross. So this is how it's possible to be dead to sin. Remember what it means to be dead to sin. I'm not under its judgment. I'm not under its, under its condemnation. It's not a means by which I achieve righteousness. It's not a means by which I resist sin. It's not a means by which I'm a holier person. I am dead to all those things. It's been nailed to the cross. And what is the purpose of this death? Let's go back to the analogy again. What was the purpose of the death in that analogy? It was so that you would be free to marry another person without being condemned for that. You and I, we died with Jesus. We're dead to the law. We did it through the body of Christ. And here is the purpose, is so that you and I could be married to another. And that other is the one who was raised from the dead. You and I enter into this new marriage relationship. We become a part of the bride of Christ. And that is the beauty of what Paul's illustration is for. And then finally, let's look at the result. What is this result of being dead to the law through the body of Christ so that I can be married to another here is the final result. The final result is to bear fruit to God. That is the fruitful Christian life. And that's how it's accomplished. It's not by you trying harder. It's by being in a new relationship with Jesus. You think about how that's going to happen naturally. 
when you are in a relationship, a living, active relationship with Jesus Christ, fruit just happens. Go to John chapter 15 today if you want to see how fruit just happens because you are abiding in Christ and Christ's words are abiding in you. And that's the final result. Paul used the illustration of slavery for the exact same intent, to drive home the same point, that slaves could only serve one master at a time. It was only after being free from one master that a slave could become a master of a different individual. And the same thing he says in 622. Let's go over to 622. But now, having been set free from sin and having becoming slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness. One more thing, application that Paul brings out. To maintain a relationship to the law is to produce nothing but death. So as a believer, if you want to maintain a relationship to the law, and you want to put yourself under the law, Paul says this in Galatians, you have fallen from grace. Now that doesn't mean a Christian can lose his salvation. But a Christian has fallen from the principle of growth. He's fallen from the principle that sets him free. And so... Here, I I do believe that Paul is talking about an unbeliever. When we were unbelievers. So in verse 5, that's where we're at. For when we were in the flesh. The word were, it's kind of hard to say we were. The word word were is in a tense of imperfect in the past. It's different from the perfect in the sense that it's, ongoing continuously. It doesn't have an originating point and it doesn't have a stopping point. So I think Paul is talking about an unbeliever in verse 5, but the application is just as true for a believer. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, so the subject of this verse is sinful passions. The sinful passions. And then we've got sort of a parenthesis here were aroused by the law, and here's our predicate. They were at work in our members. So let's kind of just break this down. Sinful passions work themselves out. Sinful passions will always manifest themselves in actions. That's where it begins. The word passions, it means an intense inward state or desire. And here's what the law does. It actually arouses those sinful passions. Look at that's what the text says. And you think, what, pastor? That just doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly what the law does. That's all it can do. It can point out our sin. That's as far as it can go. And sometimes it arouses the worst in us. You give your kids a command, and if they don't fulfill it, it'll just bring out the worst in them. I remember when I was in divinity school, we had so many rules, we had so many laws. I mean, it was ridiculous. You you couldn't have your hair on your ear. 
I mean, there were guys that they would come in and they would they would do the ear check. You you weren't allowed to come into class if you didn't have a tie on. I don't have a tie on this morning. I'd get kicked out of my class. I I had a buddy that I discipled, and he was a he was a, a just a young college kid, and I wrote this glowing letter for him to get a scholarship at the divinity school I went to. I failed to tell him about all the rules. He shows up at the first day of class with an old pair of cutoffs on, a t-shirt, and flip-flops. I had another buddy who went to, not a buddy, but a a son who's a part of the same mission board I'm with, and he grew up on the mission field in South Africa. And he got a full scholarship to Pensacola Christian College. And boy, if you look them up, they are straight-laced. <laughs> well, he gets down there, and he just he grew up just you know on the mission field doing whatever he wanted. He'd go out on safaris. He'd go out in the backcountry. And so he, t- he checks the bus lines, and he, I mean, he's got a full scholarship. This is, you know, like $30,000 a year school. It's a good school, and I'm not bad-mouthing them. And you've got the rules for a reason. But when you are a solid Christian, when you've been walking with Jesus, you don't need people to tell you you can't go down to the beach because that's a no-no. You might see a girl in a bikini. I mean, that's their mindset, okay? You got that? So he's, you know, this missionary kid who's been serving the Lord, and he, he gets out the bus schedule. He says, oh, man, I can get down to the beach. Well, he goes down to the beach. And then he comes back. He gets off the bus, and he's got his swimming togs on, swim, that's the old Irish word, swimming suit on, and you know his shirt unbuttoned, and they say, where have you been? Well, I went down to the beach. I'm in Florida. I'm in Pensacola. We're calling you into the office. You have violated about four of the rules, the laws. He's there for one day. He's already broken four laws. He calls his dad on the phone. He says, Dad, I know I got a full ride here, but come and get me. He says, I ain't going to last. But that's our mentality about the law. You see, the law, all it can do is stimulate and arouse wrong behavior, whatever that might look like. So here's what I'm saying. The law neither originates nor does the law create evil. It is simply laying the blame at our feet. That's what happens when we are under the law. And what is the end of it? Verse 5. The end of it is to bear fruit to death. This is why the Christian cannot put himself under legalism. This is why the unbeliever can never, ever, ever be declared righteous by trying to hope my good outweighs my bad. It doesn't work that way. It's a chain reaction. Our flesh, that's our unregenerated person, it is driven by passions and intense desires. The law points out where we fail. And then our members, our body, carry out those things to secure what will gratify us. 
And in the end, those things really embarrass us. They don't deliver what they were promised. And we feel shame. Let's go over again to chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, and see where this bears out. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard of righteousness. You couldn't do righteousness. You were free from it. You couldn't practice it when you were a slave to sin. Remember, a slave can only serve one master. What fruit did you have then in those things of which you now are ashamed? You look back at the past, you say, you know what? Those things never delivered what they promised. So what is the explanation of all this? Verse 6 is the explanation. We're finishing up right now. Look at the words that start out this verse. But now. Sometimes we just need to slow down when we read the Bible, don't we? Let's put it together in the context. For when we were in the flesh. But now. When we were in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. But now, our members, our members were used to do things that now we are that we were ashamed of. But now, the end of those things brought death, physical death, yes, but it brought separation, it brought guilt, it brought condemnation. There was nothing good in that. But. The radical change, the radical transformation of being dead with Christ means that I'm dead to the law. I did it through the body of Christ. I did it for the purpose of being married to another in a great relationship. And the result of that is fruits to righteousness and holiness. But now, Paul says, we are radically changed. We are delivered from the law. Notice the passive voice. We have been delivered from the law. And the next phrase tells us how that happened. Having died to what we were held by. Paul said this in the book of Galatians. He says, I, through the law, died to the law that I might live unto God. What did the law do? The law showed me that I was dead. I took that as my means to die to it as a way to get to God, and through that I found God. This is such a, a simple passage, but at the same time it is so profound. Deliverance from the law is through our marriage to Christ by virtue of his having died with him having died to what held us under. Remember Paul's point that we were bound to the law while we were alive. If it is when we lose our lives, that is the way that we find it. It is when we die to self that we really live. Not only are we released from the law's condemnations, its limitations, and its penalties, but now we are free to live habitually as slaves of Christ. 
Let's look at the last part of this passage. So that we should serve. The Greek word for serve is the same word to be a slave. And what are we slaves to? We are slaves in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That could be a whole sermon right there, and I'm not going to try to go too much further. But I just want to point out again that God always had a spirit of the law through the entire Old Testament, and it's there if you will look for it. It was everywhere there. It was there in the sacrifices. The spirit of the law was Christ. The spirit of the law there was faith. It wasn't the animal sacrifices that God wanted. Burnt offerings and sacrifice, I've had enough, he says. Malachi says, how will I come before God? Will I come with all of my sacrifices and all of my oil and give the fruit of my, my firstborn to God and just say, God, you have it all. And he says, no, I've shown you, old man, what is good and what God requires of you, but to love mercy and to love justice and to walk humbly with thy God. Many times when the Old Testament kings were unable to keep the Passover according to the law, God would overlook that because he would see the intentions of the heart. And when Jesus came, he lived out the very essence of walking in the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. You go to the Sermon on the Mount and it's all about the spirit of the law. And that's the whole reason for this passage, that you and I might live by God's Holy Spirit guiding us, not because we're obligated under a law, but because we are in love with this new relationship that we're married to, the one who was raised from the dead. So when somebody compels you to go one mile, and you mark out with your little wheel, say, okay, I've done my bit, I'm out of here. That's the letter of the law. Boy, just, just check it off your box. I did it today. The spirit of the law says, I'm going to go another mile with you. I'm going to do above because I have got a heart that's been changed. I'm in a new relationship. I am dead to that law that says I'm just checking things off the box. I did it through the body of Christ. Now I belong to him. I'm married to him, and the result is fruit to holiness and sanctification. So let's close in prayer. And maybe today, God, have I just been checking off the boxes? Or God, am I in a vital living relationship where I sense that I am married to another? Where the law doesn't tell me what to do, but the Spirit of God tells me to do beyond even what I thought I was supposed to do. Father, today, God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this short paragraph. God, we thank you for the wisdom that the Apostle Paul had that was we know was granted by you. But God, you chose him for a special purpose, God, and his writings are resounding 2,000 years later. And we thank you, Father, that this is spirit breed. We thank you, Father, that this is your message to us today.